Please turn your Bibles to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. We considered in our equip class this morning, our, our, our Sunday school hour, uh, the nature of spiritual blindness. And uh, we considered how people, uh, Christian and, and, and non-Christian, can, can understand facts about Scripture. We can understand facts about Scripture. We can understand right doctrine and who Jesus is and yet not be changed. We considered how we need the Spirit to illuminate our hearts and minds to, to see the glory of Christ and to see Christ for who he really is. Well, it's my prayer this morning that as we read the second half of John chapter 2, that we would see the glory of Christ in this text. Actually, it's not assuring when your preacher forgets his Bible. John chapter 2, starting in verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let's pray. Dear Father, we pray right now that you would do only what you can do Lord, that your spirit would reveal to us the truth of your word. God, we pray for any that are lost among us, that you would regenerate them, that you would give them a heart for you. And Lord, we pray that the saints here would be blessed by your word. God, we confess that we are uh, utterly and incapable, utterly incapable of applying your word effectively without the work of your spirit. So God, please illuminate our minds and hearts now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've been with us the last few weeks, uh, you would know that we've been in a study of the Gospel of John, and it was last week that Alex uh, covered the first chapter of John 2, where Jesus turns water into wine, and this is, Alex talked about this was the first of, of seven signs that we see in the Gospel of John. Well, in verse 11, it says, he manifested his glory, and many believed in him. The text we read today takes place at the temple in Jerusalem, and it's there, it's there in Jerusalem that Jesus is said to have, have cleansed the temple. 
Well, before we we dive into this text, I want us to consider two introductory matters that I think are important and shape our understanding of this text. The first introductory matter is that this is the first of three Passovers that we see in the Gospel of John. Three Passovers in Jesus' ministry that we see in the Gospel of John in Jerusalem. And uh, if if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, the, the geography is very important. Parents, I hope you're happy your kids are hearing that today. Geography. The study of geography is very important. And it's particularly important in the Gospel of John because look at verses 12 and 13. It says, Jesus went down to Capernaum for the Passover the Jews was, was at hand. This importance of geography is something we will see more and more throughout the Gospel of John. The movement of Jesus in the Gospel of John is very important. Uh, I, and I say at least three times in the Gospel of John because it's actually debated whether or not John 5 uh, takes place at, at a Passover in Jerusalem. I'm not going to address that right now, but only want you to understand that, that when we see a Passover and we see that Jesus is in Jerusalem, that we should take note of that. And what, something we should take note of is, the reader would notice, is that every time Jesus visits Jerusalem, that visit is marked by conflict. That visit is marked by tension. And as we will continue to read the Gospel of John, that tension in Jerusalem builds and builds and builds and ultimately culminates in Christ's death on the cross. It's not so as much outside of Jerusalem. It's not so in Cana as we saw last week. It's not so in Samaria. It's not so in Galilee. Jesus is typically more accepted. He has a following. He has disciples. uh, And they're, they're warmer to Jesus. This isn't the case in Jerusalem. So our text today is the first of three Passovers in the Gospel of John. The second thing we must address is the issue of, of whether or not this cleansing of the temple that we see in John 2 is the same as other cleansings of the temple that we see in the other Gospels. If you're familiar with the other Gospels, each of the Gospels record an event, this event, in them. Uh, the, the texts are, are Mark, Mark 11, Luke 19, and Matthew 21. What's interesting, and you might be aware of this, is they all record this event to have happened at the end of Jesus' ministry. They all record this event during Passover week, uh, or during the last week of his life, the week of his death, uh, during Passion Week. So we must be asking, we're Bible people here at Emmanuel, we must be wondering, why does John place this event at the beginning of his gospel in John chapter 2? Now there's debate about this. I'm not, I'm not confessing to be an expert about this, but it's my belief that uh, you know, some, people, some people assert that uh, John perhaps put John, this, this account here for topical reasons. And we've sometimes seen that throughout the, gospel, the Gospels, that writers place certain events in a certain way for thematic or, or uh, topical reasons. However, usually when that's the case, there's evidence for that. I don't see any of that evidence in John 2. I don't see any evidence that would support that John's placing this just in the beginning of his gospel just for topical reasons. So it's my belief, it's my belief that the events that we see in John 2 happen in the order in which they are presented, and that the events recorded in Matthew 21, Luke 19, and Mark 11 actually describe an entirely different event. So I believe that Jesus cleansed the temple at least twice in his ministry. This is the first time we see this. I'm not going to spend any more time on this. If you'd like to know more of the reasons why I think that, I'd love to share them with you. One of the reasons why I think this is because what Jesus addresses in John 2 is actually a little bit different than what he dress, addresses in the other cleansings of the temple. So, this concludes the technical portion of this message. 
If I've lost your attention at this point, I'd like it back. I'm, I'm not going to apologize, but you know, jump back in. We're going to look at John chapter 2, verses 12 through 25. It's hard for, for us to capture the drama of this account. Uh, there are three significant events, uh, events that we see happen in these verses. We see first, Christ's decisive, bold, authority-challenging cleansing of the temple. We see Christ's action in the temple. And this is followed by Christ making a proclamation about himself, which is then followed by John's record of different responses to Jesus in Jerusalem. So we see Jesus' action in the temple, followed by prophecy, followed by response. And it's this three-pronged narrative that, that, that uh, I'm deriving my three points for the message this morning. And my three points are three things, uh, three truths about Jesus. The first is that Jesus is zealous for God's holiness. Jesus is zealous for God's holiness. Secondly, Jesus is the greater temple. And thirdly, Jesus knows your heart. Jesus is zealous for God's holiness. Jesus is the greater temple. And Jesus knows your heart. First, let's consider Jesus, uh, Jesus is zealous for God's holiness. Look at verse 13. It says, the Passover, of the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. And to understand what Jesus does next, we need to understand something about the Passover and something about the temple. Children, do you, understand, do you remember what the Passover celebrated? Do you remember what the Passover represented, what it, what it commemorated? The Passover was an annual festival celebrated towards the end of March or April, think, think when we celebrate Easter, and it commemorated an event in Exodus. If you guys remember, the, the Israelites, they were, they were enslaved in Egypt, and what the Lord did is he sent an angel, the angel of death, to pass over the houses of the Israelites and killed the firstborn of every other home in Egypt. The only houses that he passed over were, were the ones that covered their house with lamb's blood in the prescribed manner. So this is what the Passover celebrated every year. In later generations, the Passover was celebrated by Israelites with reverence and contemplation. Can you imagine if this was a part of your, of your, of your nation's history, this, this Passover event? It would have extreme significance in your life. And over the years, the focal point of the Passover was centralized at the temple in Jerusalem. And this focal point contained God's presence. The temple was where God and believers met. It was where sacrifices were made to him. And it is here where the Jews gathered, Jews gathered from all over the country, in fact, all over the world, to make sacrifices to God. In fact, even Gentiles gathered from all over the world, certain Gentiles, to make sacrifices to the Hebrew God. Well, if you're thinking, think about sacrifices, what do you need to make sacrifices? You need animals, right? You need animals to make sacrifices. So, so what happened in, in, in their history was, was men gathered outside, merchants gathered outside of Jerusalem, usually near the Mount of Olives, to, set, to sell uh, uh, livestock to people who were traveling to make sacrifices. They sold them livestock, and uh, what had happened by the time of John's day is these merchants had crept closer and closer and closer to Jerusalem to the temple, to the point where they were in the very courts of the temple. 
Not only were people selling animals in the temple courts, but there were also money traders that were exchanging currency. And the reason you needed to exchange currency was because the temple tax couldn't be paid with a foreign currency. These details are all very important as you look at what Jesus does and says. Look at verse 15 and 16. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And we should be asking, brothers and sisters, what does Jesus, what is Jesus responding to here? What is Jesus outraged about here? I don't think it was so much a lack of, uh, it was so much corruption or a lack of financial ethics. Look at Jesus' words. He says, do not make my father's house a house of trade. There's nothing wrong with a house of trade. He literally means the marketplace. The issue is that they were perverting the very purpose of the temple. Instead of the sounds of singing or the prayers of saints, Jesus heard the sound of commerce. Jesus was incensed by the brash irreverence for God. The worship of God in holiness had been corrupted. Now listen, could Jesus had addressed dishonest business practices? Of course, and does so throughout the gospels. And I think he does so in the other cleansings of the temples that we see. Could Jesus have, have addressed the hypocrisy of the religious leaders? Yes, yes and yes, and he does so throughout the gospels. But here, what's clear from John 2 is Jesus' outrage for the Jews' utter disregard for the holiness of God. And I have to say, what's, what's striking to me is I can see the legitimacy of the Jews' thinking. I can see the legitimacy of the Jews' thinking. Think, here they are making the Passover process much more convenient for participants. We're making it easy for these people to make sacrifices, Jesus. We want as many sacrifices as possible, Jesus. Don't we want as many worshipers as possible, Jesus? Does this sound familiar? Don't we see the same compromise and expediency in the church today? We need to make the church more compelling to people. We need to make our worship attractive to the world. We want the church to be comfortable for seekers. We seek to enhance the worship of God with smoke machines and therapeutic preaching and pop music in our pre-service. Meanwhile, we are loosening the screws of what preserves our reverence for God. The church has in so many ways lost her wonder at the majesty for Almighty God. Now listen, it's true that new, that new covenant worship is different from old covenant worship. We know this. It's true that, and we'll see in a, in a few moments, that there's no longer any physical place of intrinsic spiritual worth. There's no longer a place that has intrinsic spiritual worth. We love this wonderful building we're in, right? But it doesn't have intrinsic spiritual worth. We're not held to the same standards and strictures as those who are under the old covenant. However, as new covenant saints who have the Holy Spirit, there remains a sanctity to gathered worship. God is present here in a way he's not in your private devotions. God is present here in a way he's not in your private worship. This is why it should matter to us that Jesus had zero tolerance for the disregard of God's holiness that he saw. 
I think to help us understand this, we, we need to understand that, that God's holiness involves two things. It's not just separation from sin and darkness. We think of God's holiness, we think about his separation from, from sin and darkness. Uh, uh, the, God is light and in, and in him is no darkness at all, First John tells us. God's holiness also entails an utter transcendence over mankind. He is above us. He is unique. No matter how much darkness we remove from our lives, we can never eclipse the transcendent holiness of God. Listen, when you're in glory in heaven, he will still be holy. And there will be no darkness in you. And he'll be holy because he is unique and he is transcendent. God is holy because he is pure, yes, but he's also holy because he is distinct. This is why Jesus responds so passionately he responds so passionately to what would have been an upright practice in any other context. Think about that. There's nothing wrong with a marketplace. The Jews can sell merchandise wherever they want. The issue that is that they were doing that in the temple. I think you know, one illustration of this, if, you know, most weddings, I say most weddings, you, know, you normally wear formal attire. I think at my own wedding, I wore tuxedo. My wife wore a wonderful white dress. The women wore nice dresses. The men wore suits. If you came to my wedding wearing shorts and flip-flops, we'd have a conversation. My wife would have some choice words for you. She would have some choice words to me about you. And what's the issue there? There's nothing wrong with shorts or flip-flops, right? There's nothing wrong with that. But it's the context of, re it says something about your reverence for the occasion. It says something about your reverence for that wedding and what we had just done before God. Well, that's the idea here. God's not so much, to, to, uh, 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 he's not so, Jesus isn't so much incensed by disobedience as much as he is for disregard of God's holiness. Look at verse 17. Disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, whether or not the disciples remembered this uh, at the time of this event, or this was maybe perhaps after the resurrection, that's unclear to me. Regardless, John is showing us one of the many scripture texts that Jesus fulfills. Our text quotes Psalm 69. And, and though he quotes, quotes Psalm 69, uh, there are many, there are many uh, uh, passages of scripture that predict something, events like this. Because Zechariah 14 or Malachi 3, they, 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 um, they predict the coming anointed one who would cleanse the temple and remove traitors and things like that. I won't, I won't have you turn there. But Psalm 69, 9 it says, for zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. This is a text, you know, zeal for your house will consume me, I, I've heard all my life. And uh, often when I used to hear this text, zeal for your house would consume me, I, I would think of it in a, that, that Jesus was consumed by zeal, perhaps in the way, you know, I might be consumed by wrath, or maybe if you read the Iliad and Achilles, he's, he's consumed by rage. Well, I don't think that's the idea here. The idea is Jesus' zeal for God's house led to his persecution and death. His zeal led to his consumption. The idea is that uh, what David says in Psalm 69, 9, it says, he says, zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And you've got to think, why were the reproaches of David's enemies falling on David? They were approaching on him, the reproaches fell on him because he aligned himself with the Lord. And they had reproaches for the Lord. And because David aligned himself and had zeal for God and his house and his worship, they hated him too. 
just as they hated God. Well, this is what happens with Jesus, and this is just wonderful to see. David indicates that the persecution was targeted at, targeted at him because he was zealous for God in his house. And what does this zeal show us? It's foreshadowing, it's foreshadowing the suffering of Christ. Just as great David's zeal led to his persecution, so great, greater David's son's zeal led to his suffering and death. And what I find wonderful is if you read Psalm 69, Psalm 69 is, is something we call, call an imprecatory psalm. It's a psalm that, that, that prays for God to rain down his wrath on, on David's enemies. So David's zeal cried out for, for justice and wrath upon his enemies. And Christ's zeal which led to his death and suffering, cries for mercy in the context of justice. It's another one of the thousand ways we see Jesus fulfill Old Testament promises and Old Testament types. Well, brothers and sisters, what can we learn from all of this? We must understand first, firstly, we must consider the holiness, or God's holiness in worship seriously. When I say seriously, that has nothing to do with your disposition or your personality. Um, I have an angry face. I have to tell myself, have my brain tell my face muscles to smile. I'm always happy, just so you know. <laughs> no, but some of, us, some of us may have serious dispositions. Well, that's not what I say when I say that we must consider God's holiness and worship seriously. I'm saying we can't be cavalier about the worship of God. The worship of God should be marked by reverence. What we do here on Sundays is not ordinary. It's ordinary in the sense that you do it many times, but it's not an ordinary part of your life. We should pay attention to what God requires in worship. We should not do what the Bible does not warrant. And listen, I don't say this, that we should give attention to these matters for our own sake or to prop up ourselves, no. We should pay attention to God's worship because he is transcendent and should be worshiped in holiness and with reverence and awe. And I'll ref refrain from fleshing out what this should look like in our Sunday meetings. I, th I think that's something you all can discuss in conversation, perhaps in small groups. But as New Covenant saints, we must consider God's holiness and worship seriously. Secondly, we must be zealous for God's holiness. Now, what Jesus does in cleansing the temple, I don't think we need to necessarily emulate. Though we do not have the authority as, uh, that Jesus did, we certainly should share his zeal. And I have to ask you, have to ask us Christians, do we, are we zealous for God's worship? Are we zealous for God's holiness? Christian, do you care about God's worship? Do you care about that he's, that he's uh, seen to be majestic in this place? The worship of God should be precious to us because it is precious to Christ. And there, there are a lot of legitimate things that are precious to us, right? That have manifestations. I mean, if, if I came dra uh, draping an American flag across the floor down this aisle, some of you would be incensed. I would expect many of you would be incensed for what that says about what I think about our country. I expect some of you might tackle me, and I wouldn't blame you, but certainly, certainly we should not feel more passion for these things than the worship of God. We must be zealous that God be honored and revered and gathered in the gathered worship of saints because Jesus is zealous for God's holiness. So Jesus is zealous. Secondly, Jesus is the greater temple. Jesus is the greater temple. Verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? It's interesting. 
that Jesus was not seized or dismissed for this behavior. In similar conflicts throughout, throughout the gospel, Jesus would be seized or they would attempt to stone him, which to me what that indicates is that the Jews and the bystanders were likely in complete shock at what Jesus had just done. I think they were in utter shock. Jesus had just challenged the authority of the Pharisees and the, and the religious leaders in a way that hadn't been done before. And I think that their question further reflects uh, a growing curiosity surrounding Jesus' early ministry. It's interesting, they don't, they don't, they don't uh, defend themselves. They don't defend their behavior. And I think what they're doing, perhaps they, heard, they had heard of what Jesus had done in Cana and there was surrounding curiosity around Jesus. Jesus had just challenged the authority of the religious leaders, and such a challenge couldn't only justifiably be made by a prophet, or as we know, someone greater. Alex mentioned last week how, how in John's gospel we have, we have seven signs that we see, and how, how when Jesus turned water into wine, that that was the first of these seven signs in his public ministry. So that was the first one, and here are the Jews in Jerusalem, they asked Jesus for a sign. So what Jesus does is he predicts, of his, he predicts of his greatest sign, the last sign, his resurrection. Look at verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. John tells us that he was speaking of his body, Jesus was not merely using the temple as an illustration for his body. No, John means much more than that. Jesus was replacing the temple. Jesus Christ, we now know, is the true and greater temple. Christ has replaced the temple. You might be wondering, what, what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus replaces the temple? Well, I have three questions uh, asking about what that means that Jesus replaced the temple. The first question is, what does Jesus fulfill by replacing the temple. Well, Jesus fulfilled, Jesus fulfilled biblical prophecy. He fulfilled prophecy. And when I say prophecy, I don't mean that Jesus, I don't just mean that Jesus uh, fulfilled oracles in the sense that you know, people said these things were going to happen and then they happen, and that means Jesus fulfilled prophecy. It certainly includes that. It certainly includes that. That's why we see all over the Gospels, we see Jesus say things, or, or the writers say things like, and Jesus did this to fulfill X, Y, Z. Well, not only did the Old Testament, uh, is the Old Testament filled with messianic statements that point forward to Christ, but the Old Testament is also packed with patterns, persons, and types that serve as that foretaste Christ. They're filled with patterns and persons and types that all point to Christ. Think about the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic law anticipated a, a holiness that would come from the heart. Think about, think about the sacrificial system that demanded priests. Priests were to be mediators between God and man. Well, we know this foresaw the great high priest, who's Christ. That same sacrificial system, it yielded insufficient sacrifices. This point forward to the great final sacrifice of Christ's body. Those are, those are some patterns that we see. Well, think of some, some, some persons and types. Think of the prophet Moses. Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is the greater mediator between God and man. David's kingdom was instituted to bring forth a greater David. We see this again and again and again. All these patterns, persons, and types all pointing to Christ. We've already seen this in our study of John. What does John the Baptist say when he sees Jesus? He says, behold the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sins of the world. More fulfillment that Jesus does. We see, we're going to see later in, in, in uh, I believe it's, it's John chapter four. Uh, we're gonna see, I'm sorry, in John chapter three that Jesus, uh, just as the bronze serpent was raised in the wilderness, it's a symbol of those who look to Jesus in faith for salvation. We're going to see later that Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus is the greater temple. So Jesus fulfills prophecy. You might wonder, how does Jesus replace the temple? How does Jesus replace the temple? Jesus does this through his death and resurrection. Look at our text. Verse 21, he says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed that they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. How does Jesus replace the temple? He does this through his sacrificial death and resurrection from the, from the dead. Lastly, why does Jesus replace the temple? This is important. Why does Jesus replace the temple? And to answer this question, we must remember what the temple was. The temple was, was, the, was, was the dwelling place between God and man. It was, it, the temple was where, where God's people were to experience his presence, where, where God's people were to make sacrifice to him. And it's always been God's desire to dwell with people. It was in the old covenant, and it is now. The difference is he's doing that through a person. He does that through the person of Christ. We'll see it in a few, in a few weeks when we get to John 4. Jesus will be discussing with the Samaritan woman. And if you remember, and as we will see, Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, he, he, he confronts her about her life. She had seven husbands, and the man that she was sleeping with was not her husband. And she says that, oh, I perceive you to be a prophet. And what she then asked him, if you remember what she asked him, she asked him about where people ought to worship the Lord. In other words, where's the temple? Samaritans think it's in the, in the mountains. You Jews think it's in Jerusalem. Where's, where, where ought we to worship God? Do you remember what Jesus' response was? Verse 23 of John 4, he says, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in the spirit. He's saying there's no longer a place. People worship in spirit and in truth. And this, this causes the woman to remark about how she knows that the Messiah is coming. To which Jesus replies, I who speak to you am he. She asks about where people ought to worship. She wonders where the temple is. Jesus says, I'm standing right in front of you. Jesus replaces the temple. A text that most crystallizes this idea is Revelation 21. Revelation 21, in verse one, it says, then I saw, this is the, the, the apostle John, he writes, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem. And then in verse three, he says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This is interesting. He's talking about a new Jerusalem. He's talking about the new heavens and the new earth. Well, where there's a Jerusalem, there must be a temple, which causes the apostle to write in verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city. He says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb 
is its lamp. Why does Jesus replace the temple? So that he could be the perfect dwelling place of God and man. The perfect dwelling place. Brothers and sisters, do you ever feel distant from God? Do you ever feel distant from the Lord? This is not his will for you. It's always been God's will to, to it's, it's, it's been his will to dwell with his people. He's endeavored to dwell with his saints at great cost to himself. He sent his son into the world to die a sinner's death for the sake of your sins that you might have a relationship with him. And I said earlier in this message, I talked about the transcendence of God, right? I talked about how God is, is distinct from us, how he is above us. That doesn't mean he's inaccessible. That does not mean that he's inaccessible. Jesus Christ is the greater temple. He is now the dwelling place between God and men. And listen, this is, this is one of the reasons that we celebrate the Lord's Supper. What we're doing when we take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is not a rote gesture. Rather, we are to truly commune with the Lord as we take the bread and cup in faith. It is God's desire that you have a sense of your relationship to him. Christian, are you heavy with sins this morning? As a temple, Jesus is not only the dwelling place between God and man, but he is the sacrifice. He is the sacrifice for your sins. Last week I was talking to a, a man who, who, who I believe was a Christian. He was a coworker, But this man had, had growing significant uh, doubts about certain doctrines in the Christian faith. And one thing that he, he struggled with particular with was how is Jesus' death enough to pay for the sins of Christian people? This man struggled with this. He wondered how, how particularly he wondered, how is God's sacrifice sufficient enough to take away the eternal punishment of all the saints in history? Do you wonder that? How is God's sacrifice enough? Brothers and sisters, it's sufficient because God's word says it is. It doesn't matter how we feel about it. God's sacrifice is sufficient for our sins. Listen to Hebrews 10. It says, by God's will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Listen, because Jesus died and rose again, he is a sufficient sacrifice in the greater temple. Listen, before the temple was a, was a physical place, you would, need to, you would need to travel from distant lands to be there. The sense was that you must travel to, to that place to experience the presence of God. Brothers and sisters, that's no longer the case. It's no longer the case. There is no place you can be where you are not close to the temple. God is near to us in Christ. Jesus is the greater temple. Jesus is zealous for God's holiness. Jesus is the greater temple the last truth about Jesus I want us to consider is that Jesus knows your heart. Jesus knows your heart. Jesus knew the hearts of men. Look at verse 23. 23 through 25, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. In the Gospels, we see many responses to Jesus. We see many people uh, have faith in Jesus. We see many people reject in Jesus. 
One of the responses that we see is the one described here, and that's one of spurious faith. This is not saving faith. This is disingenuous faith. Matthew 13 will describe this faith uh, with the faith, this faith is in the parable of the sowers as the, faith that fall, or the seed that falls on rocky ground. What does the seed that falls on rocky ground do? It, it sprouts in its joy, but it withers upon persecution. It withers upon trial. It's not lasting faith. We will see this spurious faith again throughout John's gospel, and th- thankfully the context will always make clear if the faith we see is, is genuine or if it's fleeting. Well, these last verses don't emphasize the faith of the people. Rather, they emphasize the knowledge of Christ. Verse 25 says, he knew himself what was in man. He knew himself what was in man. Brothers and sisters, Jesus knows the hearts of men. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, Jesus knows your heart. Jesus, the Lord, he knows your heart. You might have your pastor fooled. You might deceive me. You might deceive your parents. You might deceive your kids. You could deceive anybody. You could only deceive those who have no say over where you spend eternity. You ever think about that? You think you're getting away with something. You're the one who's deceived. You could only deceive those who have no say over where you spend eternity, but Jesus sees straight through the core of who you are. He sees your heart, and he knows if your faith is genuine or not. And listen, I don't say that to frighten you if you're an unbeliever. I say that to tell you this, he offers himself to you. He offers himself to you. Christ died on the cross so people like you can come to faith and have fellowship with God, that you could experience the presence of God that you can understand the joys of, of worship and holiness so that he could save you. He offers himself to you if you only turn to him. You can turn to him in faith right now. Don't live in deception. Don't be content to fool those around you. Christ knows your heart and he wants you to come to him. Brothers and sisters, my encouragement to you is only that we too should run to Christ. We should worship Christ. We should worship him in the table this morning. Let's pray. Father, we are thoroughly blessed to have your word. We, were, we are so thankful for what you have revealed to us. Lord, you truly have made so many of us new creations in Christ. And God, we pray now that your spirit would apply your word to our hearts. God, I pray that we would see Christ to be glorious today. God, that you would change us from one degree of glory to another. God, we pray in the table right now that you would feed our faith, Lord. May you encourage the saints, Lord, and may this be the day of salvation for the lost. Lord, we love you and we pray in your name. Amen.